Welcome to Big Questions. This is Cal Fussman. And if you're older, you may not have heard of Yes Theory. Three young guys in their mid-twenties who've become a sensation on YouTube by attracting millions of viewers with videos that show the relationship between discomfort and friendship. By that I mean, the more discomfort these guys put themselves in, the deeper their friendship goes. You might want to check out one of their videos before you start this podcast, or maybe check them out if you have to stop in the middle of the podcast, as it's one of my longer ones. Or maybe it's best to check out Matt, Amar, and Thomas on videos after you're done listening. They do things like blindfold and plug the ears of Amar and drop him off in another country with no money. Then Amar has 24 hours to get back to the place he woke up. They challenge themselves to eat the hottest pepper in the world. Thomas is asked to live a day as if it's the last of his life. Matt is set up on a date with a woman who has every trait he desires. Yes Theory challenged the actor Will Smith to bungee jump out of a helicopter. Smith not only accepted, but did so to celebrate his 50th birthday at the Grand Canyon. And the group's most recent coup was finding a Justin Bieber lookalike and staging a photo op that suckered in media around the world. They had Justin eat a burrito outside, eat it from the middle as if that was the perfectly normal way to do so, outraging everyone with a sense of food etiquette and setting off a viral storm on the internet. This podcast reminds me of the days when I traveled around the world without a home, meeting new people and going to new places with them. But what comes out of the beginning of this conversation is really a deep look at the word friendship. We come to find out that the friendship formed in Canada by these three guys from very different cultures is filled with some serious sacrifices. These guys love each other in a way that is actually going to make it hard for them to find girlfriends and wives, because each woman will have to love them all and be loved by them all. Amar, who's from Egypt, lost his relationship with his father because of this friendship. Matt, who grew up in Connecticut with a French mom and American dad, couldn't leave for the woman of his dreams because of the depth of this friendship. And Thomas, of Swiss parentage, who grew up in Paris, is continually looking to create videos that bring forth more discomfort which brings forth more authenticity, which makes the bonds of friendship go even deeper. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did in the moment I had it. By the end, I couldn't help but feeling really close with these guys. I hope it's the start of a beautiful friendship. I've never done a podcast with three others before, and you'll hear them passing the mic as if we're sitting around a campfire. So thanks to Luz Fleming, our audio engineer, for help with modulating the voice levels. Could be tricky. Let's see how it turns out by going straight to Thomas, Amar, and Matt of Yes Theory. So, my first question. Do you guys consider yourself like a rock band that instead of making music, makes experiences? Start with you, Thomas. Damn, that's a, that's a very good question. 
how does a I don't even know what a rock band feels like, but it definitely we have some elements of it, right? Because there's several of us, and we move around a lot and create something together. And it, for us, it's not music; it's videos. But there's definitely like a big creative process that goes into it, and then there's an audience that receives it. So in everything but the music, we could maybe be one. But I think. I guess uh, in music is you can find therapy as well, but video for us is like a way for us to express ourselves, which we all need in some way. Wow, um, this this is therapeutic for you. Uh huh. All of you. Oh yeah. <laughs> let, let, let them all weigh weigh in on this here. <laughs> oh, I think I think Thomas Thomas thinks about this a lot, so I think I think he's 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 good to talk about the like the the therapy element and how when we all met, we were all in a in a place where each of us had something to heal from, whether it's a, a failed relationship or a traumatic experience or, you know, business not working out. Like there was, there was just something that when we all met, we were, we were trying to express and, and something that we were trying to get over and through the friendship and through the, through the love that, that built from the second we met each other, that became like our, our avenue of expression that helped us just work through the things that that have been blocking us from getting to that state that we feel that we're like by the day achieving, which is just full genuine expression of our ideas and our principles, our morals, and putting that in video form through yes theory into the world. You said it so intellectually when you watch it on the screen. It's chaos and craziness. Yeah, then we jump right in there. Yeah. What, what, Matt, what were the stations that you were all at when you met? You're all coming through something. And I, I know that Darren, uh, he's not here. In fact, I don't know where he is. I saw the episode where he had to go yeah. uh, out of the country. Uh, he went to Canada, correct? Is that where he still is? Mm -hmm. uh, and so he never was able to come back? No, not yet. But soon he will be. I mean, as a friend, uh, he's doing his own projects now, but he'll come back and we'll go see him too in Canada. Okay, so it is like a band member having to leave for yeah. some reason. Yeah. And so for the three of you, what were the places that you were at mm -hmm. that you needed to rise from? For me personally at the time, it, it was the summer and I was running a business that I had started in college, a clothing business. And it'd been two years and it wasn't really doing much. It wasn't moving. It wasn't improving. It wasn't growing. And I was getting kind of frustrated. And while that was happening, um, I also met a girl who I fell in love, madly in love with over the summer. And for two months, I was just with her a ton and getting to know her. And at the end of the two months, uh, I found out that she had been dating this guy twice her age. And she hadn't told anybody. It was like a whole secret. And every guy was in love with her, but I thought I was the one that was going to be the one that gets her. Uh, oh, man. <laughs> and so when I found out, uh, Thomas and I had already met back then and... It felt like I needed something to to do to distract me from that, from both my business failing and this woman not wanting me. And then Thomas, I don't know if Thomas, you want to talk about your situation at the time. Um, no, I mean, I, I'd just been uh, like when I was 
2020, which was, so it was a year before we all met. Um, I fell in love for the first time as well. And uh, just kind of had, I was heartbroken for the first time. Um, she was two years older and things didn't really work out. And I felt like I needed a way, like I was, it just wasn't going away and I needed some way to transcend. So I needed some way of like expressing myself that wasn't just through words or I needed something bigger than what I had experienced before. And uh, bit by bit, I found film and video and I just got absorbed by it. I loved every single element of it, even the editing, which everyone complained about. Everyone was like, you're going to hate editing. Just because it it's forever. so time consuming. Yeah. And it's like a lot of little details, which was usually typically not like my personality trait to want to go and move little things around. But I, I fell in love with it immediately. Like I was just dying, laughing throughout the whole process. I had so much fun choosing the music and and putting together a story and like taking my time with it and crafting something that I felt I was excited about. Now those first videos looking back at them were terrible, but <laughs> but I still had a lot of fun doing them and that's when I realized maybe there's something there, maybe I should explore film because I wasn't I'd never ever even thought about it. Um but I'd always been very passionate about YouTube and film, um but never thought I could ever do it. Um and then bit by bit this kind of heartbreak pushed me into it. It almost like gave me no other choice but to do it. Um, and uh, bit by bit fell in love with it. And three years later, still doing it, so. Okay, so that's two heartbreak stories, Amar. <laughs> For Amar, it's a little different. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, had, I hadn't have, had a girlfriend at the time. I had <laughs> been single my whole life. <laughs> no, but I, um, I was in the middle of per pursuing um, a tech startup that I started with a friend, Oscar. And uh, I things weren't really going well for me at school. Just went through some drama there that, that wasn't, that was pretty, pretty traumatic and pretty sad. So I just decided for that summer that I'm gonna leave British Columbia, which is where I was at um, going to school and go to Montreal, literally the other, the, the other side of the country. Um, and the, the goal behind going to Montreal was to meet investors there that would hopefully, you know, give me initial funding um, so that I can build a prototype and go raise proper money to actually start the company. Um, and within within that period, I end up meeting Thomas on like a rooftop party that I snuck into. And and as I talk to people, people push me to meet this guy, Thomas, because we sound similar and we have, it's it would seem like, you know, we would connect over the things that we were talking about to people around us at that party. And eventually we end up meeting. And um, even though I was, you know, I was working with my best friend from college on the startup and, uh, you know, things weren't looking too bad for the potential of what, you know, what kind of funding I could raise or what kind of like product I could build, something felt really special about that bond. Um, it was like falling in love, but in a very different way. It's. I mean, did that's, all you guys feel? Like, did, look, yeah, yeah. Did all you guys it, feel that way when nah, you look he was, back? he was tipsy. He was a little tipsy. <laughs> I would say he felt. I I take I take pride in like, I I remember going back and I was staying at um at a dorm room at UCAM, which is a, a local university there, uh, because that's what I could afford at the time and the rooms were cheap. And I had a friend coming from Vancouver to visit who ended up somehow ending up at that party there. And I went back and I was like, 
dude, I just met this guy, Thomas. And and then I talked about him, like I'm talking about like a girl that I'm fascinated by. Even though he was like, <laughs> he was tipsy, he didn't really say much, but there was just something about that interaction and that like kind of bond that 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 felt like something different. And then we met we met later on for coffee and we were talking about how we can like work together. At the time he was, you know, setting up Project 30, which we what we all end up doing but I was trying to you know tell him like hey do you want to maybe join one up which is the tech startup that I was working on and maybe we can both build the product and he was like well I'm working on this thing that is you know both has have very similar like ethos both push people to experience more uh, whether it was project 30 which is the concept was doing 30 things uh, Thomas has never done before in 30 days and making a video about it every single day and that was the the project that Matt and Thomas were working on that summer as I was also there in Montreal uh, doing the startup. And then, yeah, right in the middle, I just ended up meeting Thomas right before they started. And from there, they just ended up deciding not to go back to to working on the startup and going to the next city, which was New York. I stayed in Montreal. Thomas and I shared a couch, literally a couch, for 55 days. Um, and then we ended up sharing a bedroom for four more months. And so did do all of you guys immediately understand this connection that you have, Matt? Is it instantaneous? I think it became instantaneous when we did the Project 30. Um, well, there was obviously the, the initial like liking of each other uh, and that we wanted to work together. But when we did 30 things in 30 days together that we of things we were scared to do uh, that we'd never done before that got us out of our comfort zones, Every single day was just another step in building this friendship. And by the end of the 30 days, it felt like we had lived a lifetime together. And we had experienced so much discomfort and so much embarrassment, but all together. And we had achieved so much in that little span of time that these guys were closer to me than like best friends that I'd known for a decade, you know. And so when it finished, when we did the 30 days, immediately we all just kind of it was it was just kind of like agreed without even talking about it that we we're gonna do this forever together, uh, or at least be together forever in whatever we were gonna do. Thirty days. It took thirty days. Yeah, it was for kind that of, friendship to solidify among yeah. all of you. Yeah, we're going to Amar now. Yeah, every day felt like we were almost setting the a new standard for what friendship feels like. It's uh you know as you at least for me you know every, with every relationship you discover a, like a a deeper layer to how much you can love or how much you can feel and every day through the accelerated program of doing Project Thirty together every day just felt like that it's like wow like we could be even better friends than yesterday and then just kept going and now it's been going for the past three years. Thomas, what were the things that happened in those thirty days that brought you? the most discomfort or embarrassment, which seems like it actually fueled the friendship. Yeah. I, I, I was thinking about like, I, I've been thinking a fair amount about why, why was this friendship different? And I think most friendships form because of convenience of being close by. Like most of my friends growing up were neighbors or they were in my class. And this was the first time, I think for all of us, where our friendship formed based on an idea more than like convenience of location. So the idea of wanting to seek discomfort. Um, and I think that's what made it so special. So then, you have Swedish parents uh-huh. and you grew up in France? Exactly, right? correct. Where in France? Paris. And and yeah. so did you, did you 
have any kind of friendship that in any way resembled the friendship that you have on Yes Theory? I've always had like a group of four or five best friends that I spent all of my time with. Um, and I still like love all of my old friends, but I think we just connected on a, on a much more vulnerable level because we were forced to be like in so much discomfort around each other. And then the like, person- What's an example from those first 30 days? So in the first 30 days, um, the very first day, Matt and I tried to make a painting and sell it. So it was like, can we- to an art gallery. So can we create a piece of art that we could somehow convince an art gallery was a legitimate artist that who created it? <laughs> Obviously we did not convince anybody. <laughs> it's like terrible. Um, but we ended up hanging it in like a, in a restaurant. Like they agreed to give us like a free dessert if, for just putting it up. Like Amar like finagled his way through convincing the guy who worked there to let us get a free crepe or whatever that we like shared. <laughs> but for us, that was success, you know, after like eight hours of trying to sell it to art galleries, <laughs> a crepe felt like a win. Um, now, yeah, I can understand that. The, the three of you, did you have to share the crepe or did you each get a crepe? I can't remember. It was like, I think we got one or two that we all the shared. Guy was Lebanese, so he hooked it up. He, yeah. I, I spoke to him in Arabic and he, I think he, uh, he ended up giving us each uh, a crepe, but well, let, let's. You mentioned Arabic. I know you're from Egypt. Yes. Uh, what was your background in terms of friendship? How did you see friendship when you were a kid? I was everybody's friend, but I didn't necessarily. I, I was everybody's friend. Everybody was my friend, but I couldn't pinpoint someone growing up that I would be like, "Oh, it's that. It's that was my best friend," because everybody was my friend, um, and I always felt different. I, I, I always, the things that I was into, the things that I was thinking about were so different than everybody around. Like, it was what, always a little me, more- Give me an example. It was just always a little more daring than, than people, or whether it's, you know, talking about like, the way I, talk, I talked about family or questioning, like why parents want us to do certain things or government and like talking about politics from a very young age. Um, it, yeah, it just- so, so others basically accepted the way things were? Yes, and and you were questioning why. I always I always wanted to leave in some capacity. So when once at the age of twelve, I started taking the bus on my own to go to Cairo, so that I can just like meet new people. Out, I lived in a in a small industrial city, uh, about seventy miles outside of Cairo, kind of in the middle of nowhere. Um, so and the people I the people I knew growing up were the same people for years, and there was no change in the in the in the dynamic of like my, how my social life went because it's the same people I was with in kindergarten, I grew up with, and it was just very stagnant. And then when I started going to Cairo and meeting older like older people at the time, I was like 13, 14, and I started meeting like 17 year olds and 18 year olds who started teaching me very different things than. The people around me over where I lived were teaching me. And that's when I realized like, wow, that the, the constant state of motion and, and wanting to meet more people can, can add so much to my life right now. Because every time, I, every time I was back in school or back at home, I just felt very, it didn't feel like much was happening. I didn't really, I wasn't a fan of school. I didn't, didn't enjoy being in class. Um, but I, I enjoyed being, going to school because, because of the people around. And then you went off to South Africa, correct? You, wow, you have never had an like someone interviewing us with just knowing that much. Yes, I did. Um, I, <laughs> this is old school, brother. <laughs> at the age of, at the age of 15, I, 
I got nominated to uh, for a scholarship to go to the African Leadership Academy, uh, which is a pan-African school located in Johannesburg, South Africa, with the goal to bring together about 100 uh, students from all over the continent every year um, with high leadership potential and high academic potential to kind of build a community out of those 100 for two years as they do a post-high school program. Um, before applying to universities and colleges, either back in our home countries, so I can go back and like be in go to university in Cairo, or they give me the option to apply to a school in the U.S., school in Canada, school in Europe. So now you're meeting people from all over yeah. Africa. That was like a level up to just cu- being culturally shocked and and being exposed to ideas that I have that that I have never been exposed to before about identity, about religion, about nationalism. Um, and yeah, I felt so. Once you're on that train, you're you're gonna keep going with it because it's like curiosity. Yeah, you, you're just not gonna stop it. But it made me. <laughs> it didn't. I, it was very stress. High school was very stressful for me because I was never doing my schoolwork because I was way more into the stories and into the connection with people. So I ended up having a very disproportionate experience to like the stress that I would go through because of school, but also the, the depth of the connections that I was making with people around me. Okay, so that is going to ultimately lead you to Canada? Yes, first to the US actually. So the, the Egyptian revolution happened in 2011, happened after four months of arriving at the academy. And I was very like engaged and involved back in Egypt. I was, you know, meeting Dr. Mohammed al who was the only man who was able to go against Mubarak in the, in the, in the elections before the revolution. And I was just very engaged. And, and the, the moment of the revolution rising was such a hard break for me because I was like, why am I not there? I have literally, that's all what I've been doing for the past years of my life is being engaged, being ready for that moment where it's like young people are doing something and they're using Facebook to gather and mobilize. So there was a lot of, within me, there was just a lot of anger and resentment that I, with the fact that I couldn't go back. Uh, now I accept it as more of like a, a blessing in disguise time because if I had gone back, God knows what my life path w- would have been like. But I felt in a way, it, it made me very passionate about the use of technology and the use of social media and the tools that are now available to us that democratize people being able to put their voices out and actually like go all in on that as a as a as a passion as a career so i i decided that after high school i wanted to go to san francisco and do a gap year there where i i do an internship with a tech startup which is what i wanted to do and eventually the plan was to go back to egypt after that gap year and start building a startup there with friends who are also in tech because the opportunities were just so, there was so much we can do. Everybody, all all young people were very excited about this next stage, but as time went by, politically the country crashed and I just realized that going back at that point was no good. So plans changed again and that's when I ended up in Canada. Also got nominated for a scholarship to go to a small liberal arts uh, university up in British Columbia called Quest University. And went there for two years, loved what I was studying. Two years in, started working on the startup, and that's how I ended up in Montreal. Okay. What about Matt? What about your background? I have to follow up that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I come from... Does it it seem like you had a more boring background? It definitely feels like it. Yeah. You know, uh, that's why if ever the attention is on me about talking about my childhood, I usually deflect to Amar. 
Um, like just talk to him more. He's way more interesting. Um, well, what was the highlight of your childhood? I think the highlight of my childhood, my mom is French and my dad's American. And when I was 13, uh, I was living in Connecticut in this like very white suburban town in Connecticut. And my mom uh, was becoming pretty sad that we were there. Like she, we, she had left Paris to move to, to the States with my dad because of his work. And so she was like, for one year, can we just move back to Paris? I was like, no, <laughs> I have friends here. I'm not going to move. And my, my siblings, my older sister and younger brother said the same thing. They're like, mom, are you crazy? Like we just made friends here. Why would we move to Paris? And then after a while, she was like, we're moving to Paris. And so we packed our bags. My dad stayed back in the States and my mom and me and my two siblings moved to Paris. And I remember just crying for two weeks straight. And I remember being like moving into our new place in the 15th arrondissement in Paris, just like on sort of like the outskirts um, and just being like, I have no friends here. I don't know how to speak French, barely. And school starts in a week. This is just preparing you for yes, dear. Yeah. This exactly. is like, looking back. Yeah. yeah. I mean, drop you into a place where right. you can't speak the language and then figure it out. Yeah. And then my mom was a very independent person and she's always told us to be very independent. So she, in a way, is like the mother bird that just lets her birds fly. So she didn't help at all with our integration. So we, it was up to us to make friends and like walk to school and like meet people and learn how to speak French. And so she put us into this international school and I met kids from like Korea to from Italy, from even Maine in the US who were also spending a year in Paris. I also met an Australian girl, which is where I started falling in love with Australian girls. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, and then I, I had freedom. I, I, I truly felt what it was like to have freedom, to be able to take the metro and go wherever I wanted with all my friends. And after a year there, uh, I f it, it just it was the best year of my life by far. Um, it, oh, it was so like a complete transition. You were going to be hooked from that point on. Anybody yeah. who could say, push yourself out of your comfort zone, you knew something good was going to happen. Exactly, yeah. And then after a year, I was, I mean, I was so sad to go back to the States. Um, I was just devastated because all my friends decided and their families decided to stay back. They loved it so much. But I had to go back as of my dad's work. And so I went back to the suburban town in Connecticut and there was nothing to do but drink and party. And I had no longer had that freedom uh, that I had in Paris where I was just like this kid running around with his friends. And it became kind of like, uh, we're not going to have any other fun than just go to somebody's basement and drink. Do the same thing and over and over and over. Do the same thing over. over and over. Like classic suburb, like suburbs in America. And I would always think back to that time in Paris and be like, ah, God, I got to, I want to be in a place like that again and like be around people like that again one day. And it took a while to finally get to that place where I mean, where I am now, which is what it felt like back then. And so it put all of you in, in a place where you're waking up every day looking to do something new. Mm -hmm. And that, some of the overlap that I feel with you guys, it, when I traveled around the world for 10 years without a home, that was the principal characteristic. Every day I woke up, I had no idea who I was going to meet. <laughs> yeah. I had no idea what I was going to eat. Often had no idea where I was going to sleep. And it was exhilarating. Mm -hmm. 
And you guys are making like an internet phenomenon <laughs> out of the same principle. Yeah. The difference is I did it without a camera. Mm -hmm. And part of my fascination with you all is just seeing how you've been able to use video and to lift yourself into the stratosphere mm -hmm. where you've got hundreds of thousands of people now watching your adventures. Mm -hmm. Were you always comfortable around the camera from the very beginning together? Well, Thomas was the first one on camera, so you should talk about this. Um, no, not at all. <laughs> it was very, very strange. Um, I think sometimes still today we kind of struggle with it. Like we're mostly comfortable when it's kind of, you know, it feels like friends hanging out, not we're on a shoot. So whenever we do more serious productions, we're always like, uh-oh. What now there's a whole crew, there's lighting, there's sound, like it doesn't come naturally still, you know, when it gets more serious. So it's taken us I don't I think for some people maybe they're born with it, but I think for most people it takes a bit of time to feel natural and be able to be yourself on camera and not change how you act or how you talk. Um I think it's quite difficult, but I think that's part of the secret of YouTube is the people that are able to figure out how to be their authentic selves on camera, but also still be, you got to heighten yourself a little bit. You know, you can't just be speaking with a monotone voice or like you got to think about the story that's being captured as well. So I think- Well, it's, that doesn't become too hard when you got Matt who doesn't like hot sauce and you're going to sit him down at the table right. with a row of hot sauces. Right and ask him questions and make him dunk his chicken into that yeah. <laughs> hotter and hotter and hotter sauce after he answers the questions. Exactly. I mean, it, it seemed like, like you could really be authentic in a moment uh -huh. like that. For sure. And I think discomfort brings out authenticity a lot. I think because the moment is so real, we forget that we're filming it sometimes. Um, and that's the best part of it. And that's when usually like, what we always try to do is whenever we bring in new people is to try to create that environment. I think when we successfully get a video that just feels right, it's when we're able to forget that it was being filmed, um, at least for the people that are there. Because sometimes people overthink it and they're like, oh man, what should I say? What should I do? Um, oh, that's and, the worst thing that can happen. Yeah, but when usually we've gone pretty good at making people comfortable being on camera and making people comfortable going through the process of discomfort as well. Um, and so how did Yes Theory evolve mm -hmm. out, of, out of this? What were some of the th challenges for the first 30 days that brought you all together? Um, so, I mean, we did like a very wide variety of things. One, we tried to meet the mayor of Montreal, which we succeeded at. Uh, we tried like stand-up stand comedy. Uh, we ate the spiciest pepper in the world. We uh, got our ears pierced. We um, tried like uh, ice skating ballet. Um, we like <laughs> got waxed. Oh, I remember! I remember seeing that one. That yeah. was really funny. <laughs> so it was just kind of like, what are? Yeah, it's like a part of it was like, what are things that a lot of people that exist? Like getting our ears pierced was something totally out of any of our personalities to have, uh, but it was still a lot of discomfort for us. It was like that's a very totally you know something I would never consider. 
uh, doing. But why not? Why not try it? And I ended up keeping that exact same earring for two and a half years. Uh, I never took it out <laughs> for two and a half years. It was the purple girl's earring that Matt got me. Um, and I was like, you know what? I want to remind myself every day when I look in the mirror of like, of this, of this idea. And that push yourself was... to places you never go. Yeah, exactly. How did this all evolve into Yes Theory? Amar? Well, after Project 30, it was time to make some pretty serious decisions for all of us. You know, whether Thomas had made a commitment that he was going to go to San Francisco and start working on a tech startup as well with a friend of his. Um, I was obviously still fundraising and I had the co-founder of the startup that I was, you know, working on with me. And Matt had a co-founder and he was, you know, his operations were going like for his clothing company. But it, it came, came a point after Project 30 where we again, needed to make a decision for whether this is something that we want to continue or something that was just, a, you know, the experience for that summer. And now we're going to go back to regular, obviously with way more perspective and, you know, having had this amazing friendship that we shared that will hope would have hopefully like lasted a, li a lifetime. But it was somehow very clear to all of us that we just have to continue doing this or have to just give it our full try in making it work. There was a lot of logistical challenges with doing that, whether it came from immigration or finances or family being happy with what we were doing, being on a scholarship and having to tell them like, oh, but give me just, give me a few more months. I'm testing this thing, YouTube, where, you know, we're making videos that, but 600 people are watching and I'm sleeping <laughs> next to another dude in a, in a, on a couch. Like it all sounded pretty crazy to everybody around when we, when we were saying like the actual odds of a YouTube channel working are really, really low. Like thousands of channels start every year, but only very, very few of them actually break, you know, 100,000 and, and then continue growing to get to, you know, to have continuous growth. So we just decided that we we're going to give it a try. I somehow found a, a loophole where I was able to, with the help of my academic advisor at the university that I went to, uh, we were able to make the experiment of starting a YouTube channel be a full credit uh, like, smart. Of yeah, of classes, um, and my domain was cyber sociology and cyber law, so it was very integrated. Like I didn't need to make up a story. It was, if anyone looks into it, it, it made sense that why this is a very very valuable to my education and my the model of the school that I went to was based on experience. So they were very welcome to it. And and Thomas just decided to tell his friend that he was going to start the company with that he's going to just hold on for a sec and he's going to continue doing Generation Why Not at the time. That's what we decided to call it. And then Matt decided that he was going to stop working at the bar, start spending all those savings on on us who were so broke and barely <laughs> afforded rent. Wow. And, so and decided to tell his co-founder that, that he's going to have to just go full-time on this. And uh, a friend of mine once told me, but, but he calls this throwing your bag over the fence, which is like, if you're traveling and you want to get over somewhere, you just start by throwing your bag and now you have no other option but to make it to the other side. And that's kind of what we all did. We threw our bags over the fence and and we asked ourselves, how are we going to get over there? Because our bags are all on the other side. <laughs> so Matt, what was the moment that yes theory came off somebody's lips? That happened a while after actually. It happened a year and a half after we started when we we just had a lot of problems with the name generation why not um 
and we were brainstorming for a while about what this new name should be and what it should represent for people. And one thing we always came back to was the fact that all of us said yes when we weren't supposed to, uh, when everybody told us to say no. The one word that changed everything was just that that one yes. Um, and that's what we had in common. So the name had to involve the word yes. And then we were still kind of like testing things out at the time. Like we were trying to figure out our way. So for us, it was still kind of a theory. Like we had proven it to ourselves, but we were trying to prove it to other people that this was a way of living that was going to benefit you. Like for whoever did it would benefit them. So this is a philosophy that you're, you want to spread. Exactly. Yeah. And we often say we're not really personalities. We're just friends. And the S theory is, has never really been about us three at all. It's always been about the community. And as a, this, this community has grown, people talk more about the ideology than they talk about us. Like there's groups on Instagram, on Facebook, all over the world where people meet each other to do these experiences together. And they, they tell us about it later, um, but they're doing it on their own. And it's all because of the idea rather than like following personalities, which is freaking cool. Yeah, well, one of my favorite episodes is when Amar is waking up in Budapest, Hungary, <laughs> yeah. and told that he's going to be blindfolded, and they stuff your ears too, so you mm -hmm. couldn't you couldn't hear, and you didn't know where you were going, and you had what twenty four hours to get back to Budapest, and they took you to Slovakia, and then. <laughs> The blindfold comes off. Well, you had to count to a hundred. This is like a game of hide and seek or so. Oh, yeah. So so you all left. He counts to a hundred. He pulls off the blindfold, opens up his ears, and he has no idea where he is. And he you have no money, correct? I had my I had my wallet. I had but I wasn't allowed to use money. Like that point was not to to use the credit card to use I had no cash. So it was only a card and that's in case like God forbid something happened to me. I have to go to hospital or, but yeah, the, when we do abandoned ends, we do no wallet because at the end of the day, you are in the city where the rest of the team is in. So there's less jeopardy in going out without money. But for this, because I had to hitchhike and I had to do all these things. It was, um, but, but I think this episode is, is very, this episode has a very special place in my heart because of the night, what I went through the night before it. And that was just, a really, really, really low point. And just like, I felt very down. I felt that I didn't want to leave. We, I kind of wanted to just like stop filming at the time. We had just been going so hard for a few months. And uh, and then Thomas and I had, had like a long conversation that night um, about how like I just, you know, didn't want to film anymore. And I, and I could see that he was like, oh shit, he has no idea what, what we're about to do tomorrow. Um, oh man. <laughs> the conversation just shifted to you know remembering that it's it's every time we are in motion and every time we're actually taking action these are the that's the, that's our only way to deal with 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 a state like what i was going through and and staying in budapest or thinking that just like not moving was going to help wasn't true at all and and it was it was the act of going out and still getting out of my comfort zone and seeking discomfort at a time where I was just like, no, I just want to stay in the hotel and not go anywhere. Um, and and the beauty of this, and this is what I so identified with. You you take the blindfold off. 
you're like playing, where am I? And now you just got to start asking questions. Yep. And you can go up to a kid and they say, well, capital is that way. And, and, and then you just start making your way and then you start hitchhiking and you meet somebody who uh, they, they had... Uh, Barber like cut my hair. Yeah, there was a, and there was some kind of wine party. Yeah, yeah. yeah there was uh, like so you know they invite you to help them carry stuff, and and then you just go with it. Yeah, it's it was like I end up fully committing to being present in that experience because I have no other option because I want to make it back to Budapest on time, um, and just it cancels out all this other noise that would go through my head, um, that or that has been going through my head in that that specific period which was kind of a low period in my life. Um, but that was, Matt always, his favorite quote or one of his favorite quotes is, action is the, is the antidote to despair. And that was very present on my mind that day. Like as I was going through the experience, I was like, wow. It, it, because my mind was justifying it to me in the moment of like telling Thomas like, no, I just, I don't want to leave. I don't want to go anywhere. And how I was so convinced that, yeah, I should give myself like a break and I should honor the way I'm feeling and I should just like take it easy. And how I'm just so much happier that I'm in Slovakia, in Bratislava, I'm hanging out with Andrew, who is a barber, who's going to cut my hair in his backyard and I'm going to meet his baby nephew and like get to know about how they live there and, and just be exposed to all these new ideas that, you know, will change my life forever. But what wouldn't have changed my life forever is staying in that day and thinking about what will only bring me down. That is exactly what I loved about travel. You just get to meet somebody. And, and often I found that people open up to you in ways that they might not open up to a neighbor because, well, and I'm dating myself here, but there were no cell phones when I was traveling. Berlin Wall was, was still up. And so... When I, arrived, when I arrived in Hungary, I was kind of like an oddity. There weren't that many people traveling there. And to go into a little village, everybody really embraced you. And then you'd have conversations with people. And even when you couldn't fully or even partly understand the language, it seemed like people wanted to open up and tell you things, uh, often things that they wouldn't tell their neighbor because they didn't want the neighbor to know. But they could tell me because they wanted to say it and then I could leave and it would be gone with me. And there was no internet for me to write anything. It, it, once I left, I was gone. With girls and women too. Uh, because if they felt like they were being watched in a small town and they could go off to the adjacent town with this guy from across an ocean, it was an adventure to them. Yeah. And, and also, if they did it outside of their town, they were free in a way. And so there was a lot of liberty. I don't know if you, <laughs> I don't know if you feel the same way oh, about no, like, that. It totally, you remember when in Cuba and the, the, the boxers, yeah. we, we did an experience where we went with uh, pro boxers from Cuba and they taught us their ways and they introduced us to, to their coach we and, the we, and we met them on, to, on the street and then later on as we as they took us out they started opening up about their dreams and aspirations and how being in Cuba is you know all the things they go through living in Cuba and the, the socio-political 
uh, situation there and obviously things that are very sensitive that they can never say in public because they will just get detained and get arrested for saying the th those things so in a way we were that we were the only people they could share that with and we end up experiencing that quite often as we interact with just locals who share with us their life so like openly and vulnerably so Thomas when you you're filming or you're sort of behind the visuals. And I know that Matt is like Mr. Discipline, Mr. Organization. He <laughs> likes to plan things out. Mm -hmm. Amar is, is sort of the uh, free-flowing of the three. <laughs> How do you plan out these different adventures? Like, How do you come up with the idea that well, you know what? We're going to give ourselves lie detector tests and we're all going to be asking each other funky questions mm -hmm. that we want to know the answer to. And we're going to see if our friends are going to tell the truth or not. Mm -hmm. Where where does that idea come from? Um, I think for a while when we were starting, everyone was kind of doing a bit of everything. Um, and I think it's still kind of like that. Everyone contributes to ideas. Everyone contributes to filming. Everyone contributes to being in the videos. Uh, but more and more now as we move forward, it's a little more structured. So for a while, the first pretty much two and a half years, we're just like someone would think of something and be like, wouldn't it be funny if we did that? Yeah, let's do it. And like tomorrow or in two days, whenever, and we'd just set it up. Like it was very unorganized. It was kind of like off the cuff. And if like halfway through the process of organizing it, someone thought of a better idea, we'd just go for that. Um, it was just kind of free flowing in terms of what excited us the most. Um, and now we have a little bit more of a process where we consider, is this, is this going to be an interesting video as well? Like we always considered it in the back of our minds, but now we're thinking about like, what's the story going to be for the viewers? What's going to be, what's the why behind this? Like, why are we, why is this seeking discomfort or why does this relate to yes theory and what's the audience going to get from it? Um, you know, it's amazing. I'm listening to you say that and mm -hmm. you're telling me the first adventure was creating a piece of art mm -hmm. that you could sell to a gallery. Right. And in the end, you're creating art. That's that's what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And yeah. it's the art of friendship in a way. Mm -hmm. And like, okay, here's a good example. We know Matt likes Australian women. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad that's all, I'm glad it's on record. <laughs> We, we, we know that he had a semi-tragic experience in the time right before he met you. <laughs> and so oh, where does man. the idea come to say, you know what? Let's set Matt up on a date like in Rome with a beautiful Australian woman that has all the characteristics that he's looking for in life. So I think that idea had a couple of layers. Cause the first one was um, Amar is like our date organizer. So whenever like there's been an, either an episode or like when we need an idea for a date, even like outside of filming, obviously we'll turn to Amar and be like, what's a good date idea? Please tell us. Um, and so we've been in the comfort zone of having Amar organizing these things for us. And so we had this idea of like, what if we set Matt up on a date without him knowing he's about to go on a date and he's going to have to wing the organization for it, like completely last second. Um, and then and he when, likes, to, he loves to be organized. Exactly. Take, okay. So like off the cuff is not like the way Matt rolls. Like he'll have a plan. He knows what's going to go down and like he executes it. And 
when we were in Paris, Amar comes to me and he's like, remember that idea of setting Matt up on a date without him knowing he's going on a date? I was like, yeah, I think I found the girl. <laughs> and it was, I don't know how you found her, but... It was on Tinder. <laughs> okay, he was on Tinder. <laughs> and then... And it's so, a beautiful girl. Yeah, she was, And not only that, it had all of the... She had all of the characteristics that he was... Look, she was yeah. smart. <laughs> but that's what... Exactly. That's So when Amar like, showed me, we were literally jumping up and down on the bed. We're like, this is going to be amazing. <laughs> but then... Obviously, we, there was like a layer of screening. It wasn't just like, like we didn't just ask her right away that, oh, you want to go to Rome and be with Matt? Thomas and I met with her. And then we, she went to the, I, I remember she went to the bathroom, like, yeah. you know, th th yeah, half, halfway through the conversation. I looked at Thomas, like, I'm now scared. Matt is going to fall in love. <laughs> <She's>, <laughs> oh, it's like, what if Matt just doesn't come back from Rome? <laughs> like, what, what if he just stays there with her? Um, but it's, I think I think the what excited me the most about this is just knowing how truly uncomfortable Matt is going to be, and how he's like him working through that discomfort was just going to be because he had no time to plan. No time to plan. He had no idea it's happening. And, and the beauty is, you set him up so that he actually meets the girl in the airport yep. without even knowing. That was a Mars engineering. <laughs> yeah, that that was great. He <laughs> told me that plan of like, you know what? I'm gonna try to get them to meet like before the flight. I'm like, Amar, this is so risky. Like, why go through the extra hoop of risking Matt figuring out what we're doing? He's like, no, no, it's gonna be amazing. I promise. I got it. I was like, all right. <laughs> and then he like, I came back with the footage and I watched it and it was perfect. It was perfectly executed and Matt sitting in silence grinning right next to us at this moment wishing we never brought this up <laughs> well, well, let me, well, let, let's let Matt let's let Matt weigh in on all this for context before because he's been asked so many times after the episode the episode ended up being one of like the ones that people just loved it, it was it was such a great episode because it was but, a love story it and, was, it, and it looked like it was gonna last a lifetime it did look like that but <laughs> and he was he was being asked about it a lot that's why he's always like just kind of regretting it the topic coming up but now he's no option but to talk about it what do you want to know, Cal? <laughs> okay. So first off, props mm. to you because it was genius to think of getting a, a Vespa. Mm -hmm. Although it, it looked a little bigger than what I remember uh, in the past. Mm -hmm. It was tough when you, maneuver. When, when, you, yeah. when, you, when you would see like, a guy with a girl behind mm -hmm. Scooting through the streets, but it, that was an ingenious idea because now you're going all around, seeing all the beautiful sights. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I like it. Hold <laughs> yeah. on to me right here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely dropping some hints there in the beginning. And and, and she like was ready to roll with it mm -hmm. the whole time. That was the most astonishing thing. By the way, Sarah, if you're watching or hearing this. I apologize. <laughs> I, um, no, but I think that was the best part. Is like it felt very natural right away, and we've done stuff with like dating and and other and like uh, several other. I mean, this sounds terrible, but like dating is a huge topic on YouTube in general and on our channel. Dating videos do really well, um, so we've done quite a few dating episodes, and this was one where I was like, oh my god, like I genuinely actually like this person. Like this is not even for the video. Like throughout the whole thing, I was having so much fun and getting to know her. And even when the camera was off, like we were just like hitting it off so well. 
So in a way, it's great that it was filmed because I have that memory, you know? The only shitty part is when, like, I'm just on YouTube and it's recommended, you know, or, like, when it pops up and I'm like, ah, okay. It's kind of <laughs> oh, like, honestly, man. it's like a musician that makes a song about a girl from five years ago and then he gets on stage and it's a popular song and he just has to play it again and the memories kind of flood that, back in. That goes back to my first question. Yeah. Are you guys a rock band? <laughs> yeah. That just is is your your experiences or your music. Thomas we're, we're passing this mic uh, back yeah. and forth. I, I think Thomas should talk about this too because he like he's the one that uh, I I didn't know that much about the Beatles. But Thomas is like loves them and listens to their music, and same with Matt. And I think, uh, especially this last summer, we started just like watching documentaries about them, knowing more about them and about their friendship because it felt like that was like very relatable to us of even seeing them interact with each other in in documentaries and stuff, and and that vibe they had within within each other. We wanted to really learn and see how like how did they end up getting to the place that they got to, and what made it kind of not work towards the end so that we can avoid oh man yeah you're already thinking that way how do we keep the band <laughs> together um you know what we were times let's talk about this because we were we were talking about it a little before uh, one of the differences in what you're doing as opposed to the way i was traveling was i would walk into a new place and every woman that i saw was a wow that could be possible. Whereas it, it almost seems like you three guys are connected uh, in, in a way that may exclude you or push away somebody from coming in. I mean, the first woman who comes into the fold, it's, it's like going to have to love all of you. A hundred percent. If you're in a relationship with one of us, you're in a relationship with all three. Like it's a package. <laughs> We're already married to, to, to two other guys, so <laughs> it's like dating someone, but we're already married. <laughs> like so, they're they're coming in into a, an existing marriage. This is going to be really tough for a woman. Yeah, Are they because she's going to have to love three people. It's it is tricky. <laughs> it is extra tricky because, I mean, same. Yeah. It, both ways, right? Like all three have to like the person, and yeah, the person but, you has know, to like it, all but, three. Yeah, it's the thing about it is, if if a woman comes in and one of you likes her, but the other two are saying, "I don't know," probably that's going to be a red flag. A Yoko, a Yoko. a Yoko, yeah, Yoko Ono moment. Yeah, yeah. and you're already preparing. To, yeah. to watch out for the red flag. I have full faith that that will never happen. I don't think, yeah. Just because you know each other so yeah. well oh, at yeah. this point. Yeah, yeah. Like, and you've pushed each other to such uncomfortable places that you know each other in ways that most friends really don't. And it's not just, it's it's also the, I think our our obsession and attachment to the purpose of of what our work represents, right? Like what we're putting out there in the world deserves our full commitment and our full, yeah, dedication that if 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 they ever come to me and they tell me, ah, not sure about that, I have to just like blindly accept that they have my best interest in mind and the the what we're creating, like the 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 business and the company's best interest of mind in mind as well. So that's one thing that 
like hopefully it just stays forever is that we we have that trust amongst each other that there's a no question asked card that yeah. any two can put in front of wow. the third and I think we're used to calling each other out whenever someone's being unreasonable and uh, I think that has just created a level of trust towards like you the other people's opinion in in the team like if if the two others come and it used to be three others with Darren but if the two others come with something that like isn't working out or is a bad idea or something like a pattern of behavior that is like unhealthy for that person then uh like we bring that up very openly we had like kind of type of interventions that helped each other grow on a, on some level and uh well, I think probably that's what, no bigger than what happened with Amara and his dad. Are you comfortable talking about that or? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, and, and we've been trying to like support each other as much as possible through moments like that. And it's been hardest for Amara. Yeah. Um, what do you want to know? Well, I, what, what I, I, what I do know from watching it because you, you filmed it is your dad basically, he, he lives in another culture and he's, seeing you guys uh, in a way that he would never see anybody in his culture. Correct. And so he's basically saying, I oh, know this, this doesn't work, son. Yep. Uh, I want you back here. I want you living in my culture, in your culture. And it basically put you in a situation where you had to make a choice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the, the choice was either to stay in yes theory or do something that would make my dad happy and accept accept me basically um that was back in may um may of 2018 and uh it's the hardest thing i've ever had to go through but i think it's also the thing that taught me the most about myself uh and usually that's that's usually the pattern the hard things that you go through are the things that teach you the most about about yourself but um i think having to share that story not that i had to but i i wanted to because i knew how many people would relate to that situation that i was in and that constant um emotional blackmail that <laughs> parents often use with their with their children and making them feel guilty for it's like well i raised you i put you through school like it's you are supposed to be following what I tell you is right. You're still young. You don't know as much. I've, I've done so much more in life. Trust me. And obviously, you know, it's your parent. You want to trust them. You want to, you want to make them happy. But I felt that with me it just got to the point where it, it was a question of like compromise. Am I going to compromise my own happiness and my own fulfillment and, and what I do so that I can appease my, my father just because he doesn't really understand what is it that I'm doing. Um, and the question was just simply no. I'm gonna continue doing what I do, and I'm actually gonna like share that story so that other people who are also going through it know that they are not the only people that go through it. That you know, all power to you if you if you take the, the decision to follow your heart and do the thing that just makes you hap happiest. And I think the aftermath. I always say that making that decision was the second hardest thing I've ever had to do. But the hardest decision I've had to make is keeping that video up online because of the amount of pressure that I was under for the eight hours since posting from posting the video for the eight hours after that, just the amount of phone calls, the friends that came to the house, the emails and the text messages that I was getting people telling me like, how dare you put a family matter like that online? And how dare you just 
put your dad in this position where he appears to be, you know, an inconsiderate, un- unsensitive man who's, you know, doing this to his son. But you, you didn't put it out that way. You put it out with the understanding that he was doing this out of a sense of love. It was just a different culture. Yep. Yeah. And I still, that's, even though it's been, I haven't spoken to him since May, it's been months, um, since April, actually. I still, there's not a moment where I'm resentful or angry towards my dad. It's only just sadness that I can't necessarily talk to him at times or share with him moments of big accomplishment or getting down from that heli, you know, after having jumped with Will Smith. Yeah, and we'll talk share, about yeah, that. We'll, we'll uh, get there. Like big, big moments like that and not being able to, sh- to share with him. But at, at the same time, I'm also seeing that what I'm, what we're all creating together is impacting so many people's lives and that's that's worth something that's worth worth a sacrifice and that's worth me being patient and hoping that one day he will understand even though i right now i don't see it at all and i don't see that day coming i still just choose to hold on to the idea that one day maybe things will change uh and i'll be able to have a relationship with him again but on on the other hand as as i was under that amount like crazy amount of pressure after posting the video and people reaching out and, and almost guilt tripping me for, for what I've for posting that video. I was also receiving literally thousands of emails of messages of comments on YouTube on the video of people being so supportive of, pe- of people sharing their own stories of how this is how this how they can relate so much to what I was sharing and how the Tunisian girl that goes to school in Paris, her mom is giving her a similar ultimatum because she's dating a French guy or a Chinese student who wants to pursue art, but his parents wanting to, you know, he's, you know, Chinese American first, first generation, but be, they be want a doctor to, or yeah, exactly. Yeah. Be a doctor, be an engineer. And, and again, I, I swear thousands of these stories um, and all of them, people just saying like, thank you for being that vulnerable. Thank you for sharing what you feel because not a lot they have they hadn't seen anyone share that like what you go through emotionally when you're in a state like this people on, only hear about it when it's like later on when you have actually achieved the thing that you want to achieve and you talk about it in the past of like oh back then 10 10 years ago my dad wasn't wasn't didn't agree with what i did but i end up making it and now we're in good terms like but you never really end up hearing about what it's like going through the actual thing in the moment which Matt, is, I'm just wondering, Matt, as he's talking, as Amar's talking about this, what what do you feel watching your friend basically mm-hmm. forced to make a choice between the mm-hmm. family that brought him up and and you and yeah. Thomas? Well, we were there the whole time. It, this all happened, like Amar said, within an eight-hour span. So when the video went up, Within, I mean, seconds, we were in a room together and Amar's phone was on the table and it was just, it didn't stop ringing. Like from his brother, from his sister, from his mom, from his friends. Uh, and he would answer it and they'd just be screaming at him and he, he just like had to hang up and they'd keep calling again and again. And obviously, I mean, that would drive any person mad. The people you care about most are like begging you to stop doing something. Um, and it was almost like holding, you know, like a Odysseus on, on the ship you know, the, with the sirens, like egging him to come down. Um, and he just like ties himself to the mast uh, or like puts wax in his ears to avoid it. It was kind of like holding Amar onto our ship and be like, don't go down, like hold on tight. Uh, and then we had like an, uh, one of our, two of our good friends come over and they were like, dude, I think you should take the video down. Like it's very disrespectful to your family. 
Um, and then I was, Thomas and I were there and we were like, I don't think that's a great idea. And then Amar was like, like he was like the angel and the devil on both sides. And then Amar at one point had this like incredible moment where uh, the the friend, like one of our Arabic friends, he was like, like this is so disrespectful to your culture, to your family, to everyone you love. Like I think you should remove the video. And Amar stops and he's like, I am not doing this for me. And then he just starts crying. I'm doing this for that fucking girl who can't come out to her family. I'm doing it for that kid that's afraid to tell his dad that he loves another guy or that he's like he wants to pursue his passion and he can't like screw these ideas that these cultures and these traditions have established on me and my generation. Like I want to show these kids that there's not just this one way that you can pick a different way. Uh and he, he was like screaming it and like with passion and crying and you, everybody in the room just kind of stayed silent. And we were like, okay, well, the video is going to stay up now. That like, was that. That was kind of the decision right there. Well, so um, what was happening in this whole th process is Amar's dad hadn't seen it yet because he was asleep because of the time difference. Right. Amar's dad goes to bed earlier than the rest of his family. So the, the so time they, bomb. So they wanted it to go that's down why everyone before was the father could woke see up. it. So his family was afraid of the storm that would happen the next day. So that's why his siblings and his mom, who go to bed later, had seen it and were begging him to take it down before his dad got to see it. So that was what the whole thing for eight hours, we stayed up until the moment that we knew that his dad was waking up, um, like debating whether we should take it down or not. And then we decided to go for a walk and just left, left our phones, left everything. And then in that walk, Amar decided that he was going to leave it up. Um, yeah, it was a very, very daunting, and I don't think, I've never been that anxious. I can't even imagine for you. Like, it was probably the hardest eight hours of your life. It was the longest, it felt like three days. It was yeah. painful. It was, like, so conflicting because we felt selfish partly, and then we were like, but this, knowing Amar, this is the right thing. And then he spoke, he spoke to my dad. Like, we were getting so many opinions that were, some were helping and some were just making it worse. And the whole thing was so confusing and conflicting and agonizing. But at the end, I think in hindsight, I'm very happy you never took it down. Same. Yeah. yeah. And you, you can see going through all that, the bonds, the depth of the bonds that you have are just getting, it's like roots in a, in a tree getting stronger and stronger and stronger. I mean, I, as a seemingly terrifying a moment like this can be and making someone feel so alone i just never felt like that because i just knew the as you said the, the roots went when are so deeply connected and you know it's been three years of constant work it's not just a stagnant relationship that is again as thomas mentioned at the beginning convenient that is just there it's something that we have to put work into every single day and and now these are the people like this is literally my family and and we have no option but to stick together and continue having the outcome of this friendship be something that you know that can impact the world in a very positive way um, and that's again goes back to why a, a decision to keep a video that is very very personal and has affected my personal life later on and in the way people you know when people come to me and ask me how am i they know they know a little more than what an acquaintance would know about my personal life and what I go through because I shared that. So there's almost an expectation to go into that topic and talk about it and open up about it. So, you know, obviously it, it came with 
some inconveniences, but I would, for the 99% part, I am very happy of the conversation that a video like that started and and just uh, how, how much it helped other people make decisions that are now making them feel fulfilled and happy. Just curious, are more do more people talk about that video or the video of bungee jumping with Will Smith? Uh, definitely the, the video about my dad. Wow. About 100%. Um, that's, that's the main. And I think with me, when, when people mention it, they mention it out of a place of also pain and hurting because they know it's, I mean, it's a very common experience to just be in a, in conflict with your parents. And we've all gone through it in very, at various degrees, obviously, but it's such a relatable experience that when someone relates to it and comes to me and tells me like, Oh dude, that video you did about, about your dad, I instantly know that they also have their own thing that they are going through with either, with either one of their parents. So they say that at, like, not everybody can imagine themselves belly bungee jumping with Will Smith on his 50th birthday, but a lot of people are actually in that position where they have a huge conflict with their parents that is causing an incredible amount of discomfort and and like pain to them. Yeah, it's amazing how cross-cultural you guys are. And like Darren's not here, but he's from Turkey. But you have such different backgrounds. And yet the, the arc over you guys basically covers the world. Uh, in in terms of the people who are going to say yes to things and want to push and and, and are curious and it, and i think one of the things i love about it and this goes back to traveling around the world for 10 years is you just see how people are connected you know we we often try to wall ourselves off and say we're this and they're that and then when you really get it down to the basic things, food, friendship, travel around the world, and, and they're all the same. What was it like, what was the moment that you had the idea to get Will Smith to bungee jump with you for his 50th birthday? Thomas? Well, there's just like a lot of our like greatest ideas, there, there's like layers of it. It wasn't just like, there was a eureka moment that Amar had, but there was a few things that happened before that led to that moment. And one of them was all of us noticed, wait a minute, Will Smith just launched a YouTube channel. So that was the first thing. I was like, okay, that means we he's, got a YouTube channel. He's we got have a YouTube, YouTube channel, channel. <laughs> and like all of a sudden he's out there and he's vlogging and he's like doing, you know, trying to be native to the platform. So we felt like that was the beginning of an opportunity. And then we had friends of ours that did a video talking about it was called "Why Does Will Smith Have a YouTube Channel?" And within a couple of days, his team reached out and said, "Hey, we love the video. Um, you know, maybe there's a way for us to make something together." And so that made us realize, hold on a sec. That means his team are looking out for videos talking about Will Smith right now on YouTube because it was just the infancy of his channel. And so we all agreed, like, we got it. We should try to do something. And then literally out of a dream, Amar came up with the idea of wanting to do, I don't know if you dreamt about specifically Heli Bungie, right? Like, how did it happen? I, it, was, it was a dream that we were with Will Smith and something so exciting just happened. It's like a stunt, something that we, that we did together. Um, and then a few days after that, I was with um, with a heli pilot and and over flying over Los Angeles, and I asked him, um, "What is the craziest thing that we can do out of a helicopter?" And he's like, "Oh, I got some buddies that can rig a, a bungee cord 
onto the bottom of the heli and actually you'll be able to jump. And I was like, wait, that's a thing? He was like, yeah. He's like, like, can we do that? He's like, I think so. Yeah, we definitely can make it work. And then it just all clicked. It's like, wait a minute. What if we challenge Will Smith to heli bungee? And it's literally, like, that's all the information that we have. I didn't even bother to go back and like look into it. It was just instantly, it was like, oh, that's exciting. Let's just, <laughs> and, and, and the crazy part that is the way it came up for us, for me in that moment, was also exactly how Will perceived it. And I'll, I'll tell you the story of, because we end up becoming friends with his editor that was present with him in the moment of him watching our video for the first time. So we actually know exactly how, how, we, how he reacted to it, but uh, ended up making the, ended up telling the guys and it was instantly, they were like, well, it's, it's pretty insane. Like what manager, what agent will allow their, the talent to do something so risky, something that like nobody really does. It's not like skydiving where, you know, there has been at least a million people skydiving and like, there's not, there's not a lot of stats. There's not a lot of data on actually how this works or what's the level of, of risk in it. But it just, it seemed like if it wasn't for him to actually say yes, it seemed like something that would get his team's attention. And we knew that, that that's all what we need is to just get his team's attention and maybe something else can come out of it if it's not him saying yes to that. But the crazy part is we posted the video and eight days later, they were both out surfing Matt and Thomas. Um, and then Matt comes, like goes into the house screaming, Jack Wilson's YouTube channel. Uh, and then we all just gather in my room and we, we look at his channel and he uploaded a video with the title, They Challenged Me. And then we just like, sit down we play it and then that was, those are like the craziest four moments of our lives of just where we just knew that okay things things are about to change forever <laughs> like if this actually if this is what we think it is because it could just be him saying they challenge me and then he goes well i'm filming a movie right now but i love you what you guys are doing i love your audacity come visit me on my movie set and we would have just been i think just as freaking out that will smith is inviting us to his set but he didn't just invite us to his set he said Yes, I'll heli bungee jump. I'll heli bungee jump with you, and I'll do it over the Grand Canyon, and I'll do it on my on my fiftieth birthday with all my family and friends around. So he's like, he just added so much stakes to what initially started with just us thinking that oh, we're just gonna hit up Robin the heli pilot, and we're gonna find a way to get that heli cord and do it somewhere in Calabasas near his house. But then he just totally blew it out of proportion. And then later on, as I as I was telling you, we discovered that his reception to that challenge in the moment was he instantly, without thinking, he said yes. And then he threw his bag over the fence. And then <laughs> it was time for everyone that worked for him slash with him to figure it out. How are we going to actually make everything that I just told them I want to do happen? Which is being at the Grand Canyon, which when he said that, like I've got friends who do slack, like high lining and they... Out, very outdoorsy friends. So I'm familiar with the, the permitting process in national parks. And I knew there's no way they were actually able to wing getting the, the, the Grand Canyon. But somehow, and, and up until the meeting with him in Budapest, his team had told us that, yeah, there's no way. We're thinking of doing it in Utah because it's not going to happen in the Grand Canyon. And then Will Smith ends up breaking it down for us when we met him in Budapest, telling us that it is actually going to happen at the Grand Canyon. And they went through the hoops to make it happen by doing like a uh, an ecological survey for the birds there. Like it was it was a lot of steps to actually get to the to get the clearance. But um, it was just interesting to see how it started for us is exactly how he received it, which is like the impulse of like this is really exciting. This would be amazing to do together, and he, him just thinking the exact same. And then 
but still finding a way to actually pull it off at the end. And it ended up being, I'd say, the greatest day of our lives. What made it the greatest day of your lives for you, Thomas? Um, I think it was the manifestation of like, we've done it on smaller scales of like having a crazy idea and then seeing it through. And that's always the joy for us is just remembering like, you know, sitting like just in our living room, even talking about the idea and then seeing it in front of you just makes you realize like the power of an idea and then like just a team behind to execute it. And that was just the craziest, most unconceivable idea and ask we'd ever had. And now it was just right there in front of us. And there had been so much, it was, it was well, very difficult to put together because there's a lot of cooks in the kitchen as well. So there's a lot of details behind the scenes that people don't know about. But for us to get to that moment and seeing Amar in the sky on the edge of that helicopter next to Will Smith was one of the most surreal moments. It just didn't feel real. Like you're standing there and you're like, am I actually dreaming? Or is this, this is for real right now. This is the realest moment I've ever seen. And I'm genuinely scared for my friend who's up there. And then for one of the biggest celebrities in the world is about to go right after him. Like this is dangerous. Like it's not, like as Omar was saying, it's not like skydiving. Like a few, a handful of people have ever done it before. So it was like, I was genuinely scared for the safety and like, <laughs> these guys will tell you, like I was having like anxiety the night before until I spoke to the lead stunt guy. I was, I was very, very scared, but he was confident that, you know, <laughs> felt like they were going to be fine. But I think just the combination of all of these things. And then my family came out and we were all there with a lot of our best friends. And we had our friends, Colin and Samir, who came and helped us capture it. Uh, and just everyone was there to witness this moment. And, and it felt like, the celebration of three years of just crazy ideas. And this is the craziest one ever. And it was like looking around like, wow, how did this work? You know, how does this happen? That was like, that was from the platform and on, on the edge of the heli, those, those were exactly the, the same thing. I wasn't, I'm, I'm very comfortable with heights, very comfortable doing that kind of thing. So that, the, the actual act of heli bungee out of a helicopter was was way more exciting for me than scary or nerve wracking or like I, I was very comfortable and excited to do it. Um, but what everything was going through my mind is what Tom is talking about is just reflecting on the past three years, reflecting on just my life from the town that I grew up in and the people that I ended up meeting that got me to go up to that party that I snuck into to meet Thomas and then meet Matt. And and now we're here. Now they are standing next to the Smiths down on a platform at the Grand Canyon. And I'm about to, and I'm just waiting for the countdown. Like what is, what is real anymore? What is happening? I was so, my life just was flashing. And I, I've never talked about that moment, by the way, like not even in our video or in any other podcast. So this is the first time talking about it. And and throughout the entire time, like there is the background noise of hearing Thomas and, and Will screaming in my ears because I was connected to what they were saying. So I could hear everything that they're saying, but they can't hear me. And, and as that was happening, I'm also seeing, again, my life go just in front of me. And, uh, my de the deal with the stun guy was that he's gonna t he was gonna allow me to hang behind and look between my legs so I can fully grasp the height that I was in because that just excites me. Uh, and he was like, "Oh, we'll do it the dangerous way." He was just getting me so excited. And all of a sudden, in my ear, I hear, "Fred North, we're clear. Uh, Amar's clear. Five, four, three. <laughs> and he looks at me, and I'm like, I'm thinking. I think he was like 
I thought he was counting down for someone else. They, I was supposed to look between my legs before they count down. And all of a sudden, I, I had this whole like routine of how I wanted to exit. I wanted to have it like to have the perfect form in like falling. And I, and I went through it like on the ground and as I was coming up. But then my mind just drifted. And as I said, like everything that I was thinking about. And then it goes five, four, three. And he looks at me and I know that they're going to drop a 200, a 200 pound rope if I don't jump at, when they say go. It's like, I can't be like, no, 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 do this again. <laughs> the rope will take me down. So the, I, I, it went into like autopilot. Like there was no time to think about my form. I just literally did. I just, I just jumped. I just let go. And in that moment, I, I have never experienced like more, like a more meditative moment in my life. The actual fall felt like an, like a lifetime, and I skydive, and I know like free fall. I know what free fall feels like, but that was just so different. Everything just went so quiet. The only thing I remember is hearing the squeak of just the the rope just extending towards the end. And then at that moment, I was like, "I am, I am in, I am in the middle of a crack on Earth right now, about to go up to see again the Smiths standing with my best friends and." my like thomas's family is, is is a second family to me my family up there and just like everybody that i love standing and i just hear everybody screaming and i hear them on the platform and it was just the most euphoric moment i've ever experienced and, and again it was like people often ask about the actual like heli bungee they're more interested like oh how was that but to me it was not at all about that that was like that was the normal part in this the not normal part is thinking about how we got there and what was it like to see Will after you went? Because then now he's got to go, right? I When I landed, I was like, oh, my God, he has no idea what up there is going to feel like. <laughs> and he was like, he's just playing it right now, being like, oh, yeah, let's do it. But he he doesn't know that he's, his quads are going to be twitching from being standing that high and him knowing, just grasping that the, the ground is about 2,500 meter right below him and it's just rocks and... Like, you know, as I said, at the end of the day, I, this is something I'm used to. It's this, this, that state of mind or being on the edge is something that I'm very comfortable and familiar with. But Will Smith is, is not, he was, he only skydove like two years ago because he was so scared of heights, but for his whole life. So I knew I, for, as a challenge, the actual heli bungee, like him to, to, to leave the thing is going to be more, that is his, that is his jump, like for him to just actually commit to letting go. Yeah, I think I think we both had very different experiences of the same thing. For me, it's way more on the emotional end of things, and for him, it's the actual physical experience of him having bungee jumped out of a helicopter. Did in the end, did he feel like a brother to you all after he made his jump? Okay, we got. Yeah, well, that was the most is, interesting thing is the the before and the after of him jumping was our relationship with him like completely changed. It felt like like the second he came out of that jump. There was, especially between him and Amar, there was this like very special bond that they had been both been through this thing together, and that nobody else had experienced. And uh, in his, he gave a we we went to like a party after for his dinner, and he stands up after everybody's like like showing him the videos of friends like saying happy birthday and like eating the cake and everything, and he stands up, and he he's like I have so many people to thank here today, and I just want to start with my guys from Yes Theory. And I was like, I was standing next to Thomas's parents. And it was one of those things, again, where you're just like, what is life? What is happening? Like, Will Smith is, is, is Will Smith. 
And on his 50th birthday, the first people that he thinks to talk about are us, who he's met like three or four times, you know. But because of this moment in his life and where he's at in life and where he's trying to go, I mean, it felt like we were like at the top of his mind and that this new bond had been formed. And even like during and after and like his whole team and, and him, like we're still very close now. And it just feels very still at this morning, I was in my bed, I was waking up. And for some reason, I generally have stopped thinking about this. And But I had some time this morning to kind of reflect. And I was like, we're friends with Will Smith. <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know what? Ordinarily, I would stop the conversation at this point because it's a perfect ending. Yeah. But we got to just talk about the Justin Bieber story. Yeah. <laughs> to end it on the best note. We, we, yeah. we, we got to talk about that because that is hysterical. Yeah. So how did that come about? Justin Bieber eating a burrito. Yeah. The concept, just explain it from the beginning. For sure. Well, I think a, a thing that we haven't really mentioned yet is the fact that when we do a big thing, like when we did that thing with Will Smith, so many people came up to us and they're like, you're never going to top that. Like that is just the coolest thing in the world, you know, in terms of hype and attention and all this stuff. And for us, the main thing that we always kind of tell ourselves is we're 0.1% of the way there. Like this is just the beginning for us. It's the first, the first page of the first chapter. Um, and so we're constantly thinking like we we stop thinking about the will stuff and we're like all right new ideas let's refresh what are we doing next justin bieber yeah exactly <laughs> and for a while we've been thinking we've seen a few people do this where it's like uh kind of manipulating the media and and putting out a like a fake story that goes super viral um like jimmy kimmel did it nathan for you did it we thought it was so funny and we, I think we live in an age of headlines, like people read headlines and share without actually reading the article or the sources. And we're guilty of it too, you know? And for a while we were thinking, we need to kind of remind our audience that they shouldn't always believe like all this drama that they hear and like that, that is spread constantly, especially about celebrities, like that they should be like very aware and very skeptical. So we had that idea. And then... <laughs> this is the the funnier part of the story is that our manager, Zach, who you know, uh, has a friend of a friend in Canada who is the doppelganger of Justin Bieber. And looks he, just like him. Looks just like him. And Zach mentioned it to us and we we're like, oh, that's funny. I mean, there are probably a lot of dudes that look like just Justin Bieber. And he's like, no, 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 no. Look at this guy's photos. And he showed us his Instagram. And I remember we were outside of the table and, and we were going through the thing and every single one of us had the same reaction. We were like, what in the Lord? This guy is Justin Bieber. We have to do something with this guy. He is identical to Justin Bieber. So we flew him out a week later. We were like, all right, his name is Brad. We are like, Brad, we hit him up. He was down. You're coming out. Uh, and we decided that yeah, we were gonna we were gonna try to manipulate the media in some way with him as Justin Bieber, and for a while we weren't sure what that would be, like what the viral thing that he would do would be. So we invited a bunch of our friends over. Like sometimes when we're stuck, we'll invite like people that we love and respect, creators um, who always have great ideas, and we're like, all right, guys, come and like let's chat. And Thomas was leading this whole operation, and he was freaking out because he didn't know what we were gonna do with this with Brad. Uh, and then one of our friends suggested. Uh, 
like well, one of the most popular thing on the internet is food. So if anything revolved around food generally gets shared more. And the second thing is everybody shares stuff with Justin Bieber. So what can you do that's with Justin food Bieber and, and food? Justin. And especially people get like very butthurt when you mess with food in the wrong way. You know, what like what's the thing with the Kit Kat? Biting into Kit Kat, pineapples and pizza. So people are very protective of their food habits. So we're like, okay, how about he eats this burrito sideways? And we pretend that we're papa, like the paparazzi has snapped a picture of him on a bench in the middle of a park eating a burrito sideways and truly enjoying it as if this is what he does. Uh, yeah. And then we went out, got him when a When somebody said that, let's get Justin Bieber to eat a burrito sideways. Did everybody immediately start laughing? Well, t- I wasn't there. It started with like, what's, what's a weird way to, to eat certain foods? And there's like, oh, like... You know, cereal before uh, the milk before the cereal, and then there was like eating tacos sideways, and then like we were like getting closer and closer to the idea, and then someone said it. I think it was our friend Taylor who first mentioned it, who was like, "What about a burrito sideways?" And we were like, "I've never heard of that, but that would definitely (laughs) piss people off." You know, like people, that is a terrible way to do it, and people are definitely going to be upset about it. and yeah, we just decided to go for it. And the interesting thing about that video is that it's probably the most collaborative video we've ever made in terms of creation, because every single person that appeared at one point in that video was like a key component to making this happen. Like Gracie chose the photo, decided that was the best angle. Um, and then uh, Taylor came up with the idea and our friend Matas took the photo. Like everybody did their little piece in this that ended up accumulating to this. Connor shared it on 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 Reddit, and then the, all of our friends somehow you know partook in this in, in a small way, and then it created this giant news thing that just went mega viral. How many like people ultimately saw Justin? Tens of millions. Tens of. Oh my god. Two hundred million people Probably. saw Justin. It was on the Justin biggest. It was on the biggest number one talk show in France at like prime time. It was like, <laughs> it was in in China and in India. It was a Twitter moment. It was in every single newspaper you can think of. It just became a cultural phenomenon because it was around Halloween, and then people actually started doing that as a Halloween costume. And that's when you know, <laughs> no. like that's when you know you've done something that affected culture so much that whether it's like you know I don't know the other trends of the internet like Salt Bay or any of these personalities that just come up and then become huge that people end up doing it for a Halloween costume. And we were like, we were seeing it on, on Snapchat on the discover page of people wearing it, like doing it as a Halloween costume. And we were like, wow, this just became so much bigger than we ever thought. We, uh, we just, we just influenced culture in the most, in the, in the most absurd way possible. Like in ways we, that is the last way with one of you. culture. Think about 200 million people. Like the world's only got what six or seven billion. Yeah, but it's it's just so that's one of the, one of those moments where you see it happen and you're like, I can't believe this was just like a little idea that we came up with. Like people are commenting about the sweater. Like I remember just walking into like freaking H and M buying the cheapest pink sweater I could find. Like it was all just so random, and then it's becoming like a huge thing. <laughs> and you know, you remember just sitting in like. You know, in shorts in your backyard being like, what would be funny? You know, and then it just takes a whole life on its yeah. own. And hearing other people talking about it is so funny. Like, because this is on the news everywhere. All, yeah. Friends of 
the funniest was friends were sending us the picture, you know, and and like friends were sending us screenshots of their friends posting the picture without having any idea it was us. Like we felt honestly at the moment kind of like the Illuminati. We we're like, this is what it must feel like. You just throw something out, people believe it, and you're like, ha, 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 gotcha. And that's how we start the video. Gotcha. Yeah. Did Justin ever weigh in on this? Did it, any comment from Justin? <laughs> no. Justin's going through a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Justin's already dealing with drama, it seems like, every day. Or paparazzi, at least. But his manager, Scooter, um, he, he reached out the night that it happened. We FaceTimed him. And he he knew it wasn't Justin, but he told us on the phone. He was like, I'll just play along. Like, I think this is hilarious. I'll just go with it. And I totally see why Scooter would, would go along with it because he it, it exposed the very thing that had affected his talent, that affected Justin the most, which is just people. Everybody looking ev- in on his life and examining and, everything that and, he does. And just, I think, uh, making the assumptions, but also just, as, as Matt said, it's like the age of people just looking at a title and being like, oh, wow, like, well, that's getting views. So our new source should also post that because because we'll also get views if we do it because it was such it was such a perfect topic as as thomas was saying like there was a debate which was going to prompt people to comment which is exactly what any news source like posting would want people to do like it wasn't just a like a feel-good story where people would come and be like oh my god that's so kind justin's a hero like that was people going in to have a debate whether it's him or you not. You can't eat a burrito exactly, like that. Exactly. And yeah. that's obviously for like the way algorithm algorithms work. That's kind of how news spread now. And that was the most alarming part in all of this. Like, holy shit, like the, the way the, the technological infrastructure to how the news spread are built in a way where the most controversial stuff makes it to the surface and more people are interested in covering that story because they get engagement, which means they get views, which means they get money. And then all of a sudden, what do we even believe in anymore? Because when one thing, when one photo goes on Reddit for about eight hours and then the following day we wake up and within the following 48 hours, it's on every respected news source around the world. Or not every, but like a lot of them and internationally covered without even people verifying who took the photo or like what is the context of when it happened. And, And we are also approaching a time where I don't know if you've if you've been following, but now the the software that allows people to make video videos of I can make a video of Obama doing anything, saying anything. I can make him. The only thing that the the the, the technological challenge that they're trying to get over right now is the voice. How do you replicate voice? But once we get to that point, people will be able to make videos of politicians or celebrities saying anything, and it literally looks like it's them. Nobody can like unless you're like an expert, nobody will be able to be like, oh, that's a fake video. So we are approaching a time where fake news is going to be so much harder to combat because of the technological advancement of how people are actually able to construct these stories and make them spread. And our example was just a bunch of dudes just like fucking around and, you know, having fun with this. It wasn't even like an operation that like a PR firm or there's so much like that my mind went to with even the elections with Trump and how how many of these stories must have been like planted in very malicious way that end up spreading false information that end up influencing the whole like course of American politics for the next for the following four years from that point on. Um, it was just very as as hilarious as it was for me personally. It was very like scary, alarming, and just like made me feel very uneasy about the way the internet works. Well, you know, it, it's an interesting way to wrap this up because. 
it, it always seems to push toward the uncomfortable. <laughs> I mean, that, that's in a really poignant way. But you started out to do something funny, and it literally pushed the whole society into an uncomfortable place. And hearing what you just said, Amar, everybody should be feeling uncomfortable. And so when, when you really get to the bottom of it, what, what you're doing is so necessary for everybody to, to be pushed to a place where you gotta see deeper truths and you're gonna be uncomfortable looking at those truths. And the beauty is the way you do it provides humor and makes you lean in. It, it is a work of art, but it's very profound underneath. And I think there's a lot of people out there who are grateful that, about this, and I'm number one. It means it means so much coming from 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 you with all the experiences that you've just gone through in life, and and all the great people that you've met, and the great stories that you know. It means so much that you're saying that. Well, we appreciate it. It's sincere. Yeah. Thank you so much, Cal. We've never had an interview with someone that knew so much about us ahead of time. So <laughs> it definitely allowed for directly deep conversations. It wasn't like because you knew the context, so directly it was to the source of of the why and the emotion, which is amazing. And yeah, like Thomas was sharing with me this morning a little bit about, um, uh, he put on the Tim Ferriss podcast in the morning before you, you came and he was telling me about you writing the letter to um, what, what was the president, right? Uh, Lyndon B. Johnson, yeah, yeah and, the and, president. And then Thomas was reflecting on the power of asking like a good question and which is like what your whole thing is all about and it, it i think it set off the day for me on the on the right note of just like thinking like wow that is so true it's just it's all about asking yourself the right questions and and i think just going through this interview which was i think my favorite interview that we've ever done it just made me realize like again ha the quality of what we can share can improve so much with better questions that we ask ourselves and better questions that we can ask the world you got anything to top that, Matt? I think. <laughs> no, no, I agree, and I'm I'm excited to get to know you better because right now all the questions were directed towards us, but we definitely want to hang out and, and yeah, I, you're the I, amount of stories. I, I'm, in, I'm in. I'm yeah. in. I felt a tremendous connection. Same. The minute I heard about you guys, <laughs> yeah. But for me, the the beauty is you're doing it in ways that. I, I could never have figured. And there's something about us talking today that really gives me a sense of hope of moving forward because I never had a, a podcast till mm. like less than a year ago. Wow. And I just hit today, I didn't even have like really any Twitter or Instagram, but I hit 10,000 on Twitter today, oh, which really? for, for me was like climbing Mount Everest. I mean, <laughs> for you guys, the 200 million. <laughs> but you guys like are making me understand, Cal, if you're going to do what you want to do, like YouTube is the way to go. Uh, you, you've got to reach out to Instagram and, and Twitter. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I've slowly been doing this, but today has really just 
pushed me. I, you've made me throw my bag yeah. over the wall. It's now on the other side. Yeah. Now I got to go over the wall. That's how I'm leaving here. I'm going to go over the wall. Time to do it. Let's go. All right. I'm with you. Cheers. Cheers. That about wraps it up. I want to thank Tim Ferriss for nudging me to start this podcast and meet people I never would have run into if I hadn't. I want to thank Zach Arnavar, who manages Yes Theory, for setting this all up. When I give speeches, I often use an interactive exercise to teach people about the power of the right question. I show how you can get to a very deep place in a conversation really quickly by asking a single question. One of those questions is, why is your best friend your best friend? I encourage you to ask yourself that question today and then to reach out to your best friend to remind yourself why you answered the way you did. See you next week. Cheers.